Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Emperor Yongzheng. We've talked a fair amount on this podcast about the great Emperor Kangxi of the Qing Dynasty, who sat on the Chinese throne for over six decades, from 1662 until 1722. Indeed, Kangxi began a period in Chinese history that would later strike European observers as remarkably stable, evidencing in their minds the remarkable stability of the Chinese imperial system itself. Think about it. When Kangxi ascended the throne, Europe had only not long ago concluded the Peace of Westphalia of 1648, ushering in the modern international state system in Europe. By the time Kangxi's grandson, Emperor Qianlong, died in 1799, Europe was nearing the end of the French Revolution. Over that entire span of time, as Europe went through all of these turmoils and changes, as the modern world as we know it evolved into its familiar shape, China not only had the same political system, it had only three rulers, a father, a son, and a grandson. So yes, we've already talked a fair bit about Kangxi, and I'm sure in time we'll talk quite a bit about his grandson Qianlong. But today let's make room for the middle of the three, Emperor Yongzheng, son of Kangxi and father of Qianlong. In some ways, Yongzheng can feel like something of an afterthought, someone kind of left out compared to both his father and his son. This is substantially because he only ruled for a little under 13 years, from 1722 until 1735. That's not that much compared to the more than six decades each clocked by Kangxi and by Qianlong. And yet, the Chinese have not forgotten Yongzheng, certainly not, for some very good, which is to say arguably very bad, reasons. In fact, Yongzheng's reign made such an impression on the Chinese psyche that quite a bit of myth-making grew up around him. The prince who would come to be known as Emperor Yongzheng was born in 1678 in the Forbidden City, as Aixingjueluo Yingzhen. Aixingjueluo was, of course, the Manchu surname of the imperial family. So for now, let's call him Yingzhen. As a child, apparently Yingzhen didn't necessarily make the best impression on his father, who said of the kid that he had a mercurial temper. You never knew when he would smile or turn angry. Later, Kangxi saw in his son the flaw of impatience and a tendency to anger, and he admonished him for it. Ying Zhen was Kangxi's fourth son, 
and Kangxi would go on to have a lot more sons. In fact, as of the time of his death, Kangxi still had twenty-four surviving sons. As Kangxi grew older, the question of who would turn out to be his successor preoccupied all the princes. Unlike the Han Chinese, who usually observed primogeniture, the Manchu rulers who had come into China to establish the Qing Dynasty were more inclined to pick the most capable of their male offsprings to serve as the heir. In 1674, Kangxi named his second son, Yingreng, as the crown prince. Unfortunately, perhaps precisely because Kangxi named him to the post so early, Prince Yingreng grew up to be a bit of a dick. In 1708, Kangxi decided that he'd made a terrible mistake. He wanted to strip Yingreng of the title of Crown Prince. At this time, Yingzhen actually spoke up in defense of his brother, Yingreng, but it was to no avail. Kangxi announced that Yingreng was no longer the Crown Prince, and suddenly, every other prince was again in the running for the position. I say every other prince, but in reality, the political forces coalesced into factions around nine of Kangxi's sons, as they vied for their father's favor. But then, only a year later, Kangxi changed his mind again and reinstated Yingreng as the crown prince. And then, three years later, in 1712, Kangxi. Once again, felt that Yingreng was not a suitable heir, and abolished him for a second time. Despite having defended his brother in 1708, Yingzhen now saw that Yingreng was politically finished. He now set out to win the throne for himself. This tortured lead-up. To Kangxi's final choice of a successor helps to explain the first great popular myth that developed about Yongzheng. How did he come to win the throne? Emperor Kangxi ultimately chose his successor only on his deathbed, writing his decision into his will, and handing said will to one of his most trusted. Ministers, a man named Long Kedua, shortly before his death, on December twentieth, seventeen twenty-two. At this time, the two leading candidates for the throne were Yingzhen, the fourth son, and his younger brother, the fourteenth son. Yingzhen was at this time in Beijing. His brother, the fourteenth son. Was not. So the legend goes that upon Kangxi's passing, Long Kedua conspired with Yingzhen. He showed him the emperor's will in private first. 
and the two of them saw that it read, "I pass my throne unto my fourteenth son." They then secretly altered the will to read, "I pass my throne unto my fourth son." And with that, Prince Yingzhen ascended the throne as Emperor Yongzheng. It's a cute story, but it has no basis in fact. One reason this legend has some legs is that such a change in meaning in Chinese would require only a single stroke of the writing brush. But in reality. Kangxi left a trilingual will, Chinese, Manchu, and Mongolian. Even if the change required minimal forgery in Chinese, this was not so in Manchu and Mongolian. In addition, given the importance of imperial succession, neither Kangxi nor any other Qing Dynasty emperor would have designated his successor with only the words. My fourteenth son. He would have written out the chosen heir's full name and princely title. Words that couldn't have been altered. All actually established facts suggest Kangxi really did intend to choose Yingzhen as his successor. Nonetheless, the legend has persisted, which I believe is telling. About the reign of Emperor Yongzheng. One more light-hearted aspect of Yongzheng's personality was that he rather enjoyed dressing up in various costumes and then having his portraits painted. What today we might call cosplay. In one portrait that looks pretty hilarious now. Yongzheng is shown fighting a tiger, while dressed in the clothes of a European gentleman, including a wig. But Yongzheng was actually a serious and conscientious ruler, and he took the throne in his mid-forties, at a time when he was both old enough and experienced enough to know how to govern, but also young enough to possess. The tremendous energy that he displayed. In old age, in his final years, Emperor Kangxi had begun to let things slip, so that corruption began to creep into the Qing bureaucracy, which was growing bloated anyway, leading to deficits in the treasury. Now it was up to Yongzheng to fix the problems. He fought. To get rid of corrupt officials, and took economic measures to shore up the empire's finances. But in pursuing his policy goals, Yongzheng also increasingly centralized the apparatus of government. So much so that today he is substantially remembered as a great totalitarian. He strengthened. And increasingly relied on a system of secret informants across the empire, authorized to report directly to the emperor. Essentially, a kind of secret police. 
And infamously, Yong Zheng prosecuted a number of prominent cases of Wen Ziyu. Wen Ziyu literally means language prison or literary prison. It means to imprison, or worse, someone for something they said or wrote. In other words, the absolute opposite of free speech. Wen Ziyu was something that always existed in China, a country that never considered free speech anybody's right. And Chinese culture being highly literate, oftentimes intellectuals and mandarins attracted imperial ire, not even for criticizing the monarch in any direct way, but through some obscure literary reference in poetry, which often wasn't even intended as criticism, but could be interpreted as such if one adopted the most tortured and uncharitable reading. The Yongzheng era in particular came to be associated with the practice. And the most notorious case involved a writer named Lu Liuliang. The funny thing about the so-called Lu Liuliang case is that by the time of the case, the man, Lu Liuliang, had already died. Indeed, he died in 1683, decades before Yongzheng even came to the throne. But Lu Liuliang had left writings behind in which he called for the Han Chinese to resist their Manchu overlords, the rulers of the Qing dynasty. Later, another character named Zheng Jing read Lu Liuliang's writings and decided that the man was right. So, in 1728, with his student Zhang Xi, this man Zheng Jing approached a provincial governor who was not only Han Chinese, but also a descendant of the Song Dynasty hero Yue Fei. They asked this governor, Governor Yue, to rebel against the Qing court. Governor Yue pretended to be interested in their proposal. Then he reported their treasonous activities to Emperor Yongzheng and had them arrested and sent off to Beijing. Professor Jonathan Spence wrote a fascinating book about this case called Treason by the Book, in which he highlighted the remarkable way in which Yongzheng exercised his totalitarian power. See, it wasn't enough for Yongzheng that his government had uncovered and defeated this plot. He proceeded to compel Zheng Jing to write a book-length account, not only confessing to his own guilt, but to praise the emperor for his infinite greatness and wisdom. Yongzheng then added his own preface and commentary to the book and published it, requiring every official across the empire to own a copy. But that still wasn't enough. He ordered Zheng Jing to travel across China to give public lectures on why he was wrong and the emperor was right. Ultimately, Zheng Jing and his student Zhang Xi 
were executed, but that wasn't until the time of Yongzheng's son and successor, Emperor Qianlong. And then Yongzheng decided that the real culprit here wasn't Zhang Jing. It was Lu Liuliang and his writings. But Lu Liuliang had been dead for decades by then. How do you punish a dead man? Well, in 1733, 50 years after Li Liuliang's death, Yongzheng had his body disinterred from his tomb. He also exhumed the body of one of Li Liuliang's sons, who had already died. Then he executed another son of Li Liuliang, who was still alive. Then he enslaved Li Liuliang's grandchildren and had them exiled to the farthest reaches of Manchuria, in other words, the Russian border. This treatment of Liuliang's family, however, was what earned Yongzheng another piece of myth-making, the myth of how he died. According to Qing court records, which is to say proper history, Yongzheng died of an illness on October 8th, 1735, at the Imperial Garden. Scholars have speculated that the illness might have been a stroke, or that Yongzheng might have accidentally poisoned himself when he took the elixir of some monk or priest. Popular legend, however, held that one female member of Lu Liuliang's family, either his daughter or granddaughter, a woman known as Lu Sinyang, or fourth lady of the Lu family, escaped the family's destruction in 1733. And trained in Kung Fu by a famous teacher, Lu Sinyang became a deadly assassin. On that fateful night, on October 8th, 1735, she penetrated even the tightest security around the emperor's person and decapitated Yongzheng, then took his severed head with her. Once again, not true, but the myth says a lot about how common people felt about Yongzheng. He was competent and hardworking, yes, a competent and hardworking dictator. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.